Welcome to Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm your host, Jim Dubois. Senator Amy Klobuchar is facing accusations from former staffers that she mistreated them. Other staffers have expressed support for the senator. What differentiates a tough boss from an abusive boss? And are women held to a different standard from men when it comes to their management style? This week on Dialogue Minnesota, University of Minnesota Assistant Professor of Human Resource Development Joshua Collins shares his insights on managers' expectations of their employees. He joins us by phone from his office. Professor Collins, thanks for joining us on Dialogue Minnesota. Thanks for having me. After Senator Amy Klobuchar announced her candidacy for president, the online news services BuzzFeed and HuffPost reported that former staff members were accusing the senator of treating them poorly in the workplace. The New York Times recently reported that several former staffers were accusing Klobuchar of mistreating them. What are the differences between being a tough boss and an abusive boss? And is the distinction to some extent in the eye of the beholder? Dr. Kevin Rose and a group of researchers out of the University of Louisville have done some interesting work in this area, um, most notably a published review of previous research on dysfunctional leaders, which initially reviewed over 200 peer-reviewed academic studies on that topic. And those researchers developed a taxonomy of what they call dysfunctional leader behaviors on a two-dimensional axis. And the vertical axis would be describing leader behavior on a continuum from low dysfunction to high dysfunction, and the horizontal axis describing the emotional reaction a leader behavior might produce in employees, ranging from simply being annoyed with your boss, right, kind of on the low end, to that leader behavior causing trauma in your life as an employee on the high end of the continuum. So to give you a couple of examples, and then I'll relate them to um, the allegations against Senator Klobuchar, a lower dysfunction, merely annoying behavior might be something like a rude comment or maybe having unrealistically high expectations of employees. But a lower dysfunction, quite traumatic behavior might be something like overworking your employees or being very controlling about the way they do their work. On the flip side, kind of highly dysfunctional behaviors um, that are annoying might be things like giving an employee the silent treatment, while highly dysfunctional and traumatic behaviors would include things like, obviously, bribes, physical mistreatment, telling employees they're stupid. I think most demanding or tough bosses probably display a range of lowly dysfunctional behaviors that can either simply be annoying or be traumatic for employees. And this is where I would classify most of the allegations Senator Klobuchar has had leveraged against her, things like shaming an employee for a poorly written memo, expecting extremely long hours. An abusive boss is someone who is more highly dysfunctional. And I have to say, I do think there are a few allegations against Senator Klobuchar which fall in this range, things like throwing items, in meetings or having employees and interns, mind you, some of them with undergraduate and graduate degrees from some of the most prestigious institutions in the United States, bright young minds do demoralizing things like wash dishes, or I think the example a lot of people are familiar with at this point, cleaning off a comb that she used to eat a salad because a staffer was unable to procure a fork, which 
me, sounds like something straight out of an SNL sketch, only not funny because it's real life. However, all the complaints and allegations are anonymous. Um, no staffer has gone on record with their name. None have questioned her record as a senator, and none have called on her to resign. Um, they simply don't like the way she managed them. And I think that fact should not go overlooked. And I think that's where a deeper and more nuanced analysis that goes beyond a simple classification system for the leader behaviors the senator has been accused of displaying is needed to understand what might be going on, not only for Senator Klobuchar, but for leaders, and I think specifically women leaders the world over. And the question becomes not only about what are tough leader behaviors versus abusive ones, but also is everyone being held to the same standard. Joshua Collins is an assistant professor of human resource development at the University of Minnesota. He is an expert on human resource development theory and practice. We're talking about allegations that Senator Amy Klobuchar mistreated some former staff members. Professor Collins, you suggested that it's important to make sure that managers are held to the same standard regardless of gender when it comes to questions about how they treat their staffs. Let's talk more about that. Some defenders of Senator Klobuchar are expressing concern that she is being held to a standard that is not applied to men in similar positions. What are some of the particular challenges women in senior positions face when they demand a lot from their employees? Well, the research that I mentioned earlier, one of the things that it does not do is consider personal characteristics or identities of leaders and employees, um, nor does it account for biases that may be related to those characteristics and those identities. And my training as not only as a scholar and practitioner of human resource development, but also in gender and women's studies tells me that there's a need for a gender analysis in exploring employee perceptions of these tough leader behaviors. I don't think it's difficult, as I said, to classify most of the behavior Senator Klobuchar has been accused of displaying somewhere in that taxonomy but I also have a hard time believing that she operates so keenly differently from most of the men on Capitol Hill, past and present. At a baseline, there exists decades of research showing that leadership behaviors are judged differently in men and women. Probably the most common example a lot of people have heard of is the well-documented fact that being assertive is seen as a positive trait in men, whereas it's seen as an aggressive trait in women. And women are often penalized for behaviors across the entire spectrum, right? Women are penalized for being too harsh, too soft, too loud, too quiet, too masculine, too feminine. And the double standard is really transparent once you learn um, to start recognizing it. In her recent CNN town hall, Senator Klobuchar was asked, and I would add by an older white male business professor, about how she might improve her leadership style. Getting back to your question, right, I've never heard such a question asked of a male candidate. How can you improve your leadership style? But I do think she handled the question well. She spoke about her staff by name, talked about their length of service, gave specifics about roles they had played and why they were a valuable part of her team. I feel, and I think research shows us that women leaders deal with things that men never have to deal with. Imagine being a woman in a position of power and getting a call from one of your employee's husbands who doesn't even work for your organization. 
chewing you out because you had developmental feedback for his wife during her annual performance review. I personally know a woman leader who has had this experience, and it's just so bizarre and so counter to what we know male leaders experience. And we don't have these conversations about men, and men don't have these same kinds of experiences. That doesn't mean we shouldn't take the allegations against Senator Klobuchar or any woman leader who may be tough or abusive seriously. I think we absolutely should. But I do also think that the allegations against the senator are an excellent mechanism for exploring how women are perceived differently from men in leadership roles. I think it's worth pointing out that the case against Klobuchar as a tough and potentially abusive boss is undermined when media outlets choose purposefully unflattering photos to accompany the stories, for example. So even when we're trying to make a fair point about her management or leadership style, those points are easily downplayed because of the sexism in the way it is reported and talked about. And I believe if women are to achieve equal status in the domain of leadership, things like that have to stop. In addition, one of the things I've seen in the cover of Senator Klobuchar is um, pointing to her turnover rates as an objective indicator that the rumors about her must be true. If her staff is turning over, then she must be a bad boss, right? The numbers themselves, though, may be objective, and she does have one of the worst turnover rates in the Senate. But people interpreting them are still affected by implicit and confirmation bias. In other words, we as a society are conditioned to denigrate women in leadership roles and to search for every flaw, no matter how major or minor, in a way that I believe we don't for men. Our implicit bias against women who have and seek power is confirmed when we find out that a female senator's office has a high turnover rate. And we ignore the stories, and I'll add stories by people who have been willing to go on record with their name about her good qualities, the qualities that have encouraged them to stick around for years, um, some of them decades. Even within the last few days, some of the staffers who have been cited in the stories about her abuses have come forward again to say that reporters left out all the good things that they had to say about her and that they only focused on the negative. Probably... I would say that the truth is somewhere between those two extremes. It's a really good sign of how polarized our politics have become and how eager we are to tar and feather women leaders at the first sign of trouble. And I want to draw, though, a parallel to another prominent woman leader we all know who was in a similar position to the senator just a couple of years ago. I'm talking, of course, about Hillary Clinton. As the first woman to be seriously considered for a major party's presidential nomination, She faced these kinds of barriers, these kinds of allegations that men don't face for decades. But because she did win her party's nomination in 2016, I think we're in a position now where a historic number of women are running for president within one political party, and it's a foregone conclusion that they have different strengths, different weaknesses, in the same way um, male presidential candidates do. In its own way, I do think that's progress. However, if you look back at the example from just a few years ago of Clinton, she was constantly held to a standard where things that never mattered for male candidates suddenly became relevant. 
not only did we need to know how much money she had made as a private citizen in her time between being Secretary of State and a presidential candidate, and she willingly offered decades of her tax information, which neither her primary nor general election male opponents did the same thing. We also needed to know exactly what she said in her private paid speeches. There was a total distrust of her that I certainly had never seen that kind of or level of distrust of any other male presidential candidate. Not only that, there was this sense that she wasn't worth the amount of money that she was being paid for those speeches, that there had to be some sinister reason that she would be paid $200,000 for a speech. It somehow meant that she was bought, that her policies and positions couldn't be authentic, despite the fact that she was a former successful lawyer, first lady, U.S. senator, secretary of state, I doubt we would question the compensation rate of any man with similarly impressive skills. This doesn't just happen in presidential politics. It happens in all sorts of organizations. When women rise to power, suddenly the standards for excellence and for trustworthiness change. And I want to come back to the question that I posed earlier, which is, is everyone being held to the same standard. Have you seen any research that indicates there are generational differences in how employees view the management styles of their bosses? For example, on Capitol Hill, many of the congressional staffers are younger people in their 20s and 30s. Do you think that millennials may have less tolerance for demanding bosses than older generations? That's a uh, really great question. And, you know, I'll start by saying that I am not aware of kind of the age demographics or breakdown of the people who have come forward specifically about Senator Klobuchar. I'm not sure if they would identify as millennials or Gen X or some other generation. I do think that there's certainly a difference in the way millennials are viewing work and viewing um, what is acceptable at work. Uh, There's a lot of evidence that millennials are more willing to kind of job hop, move along if they're not satisfied with their work environment or with the way that they're being supervised or managed, whereas a lot of previous generations felt more of a commitment to organizations in general rather than individual careers. So, you know, Senator Klobuchar's office took a chance on me, and therefore I will be dedicated to her and to this office going forward despite factors that might make me uncomfortable or unhappy. Um, And I do think there's a little bit of a pushback from millennials on that attitude, and we are more willing to call out those bad behaviors or walk out if necessary. But I also think that there's research showing us that millennials are more attentive to identity issues and understanding of the different ways that behavior might be not only enacted but perceived by leaders across gender, across sexual orientation, race, and millennials are responsive to that reality in terms of kind of dissecting their own thought processes around, am I feeling this way because Senator Klobuchar is a woman or am I feeling this way because she is a bad boss? So I think it's definitely a a complicated issue and I do think there are generational differences But it's hard to say which way they might fall in terms of this issue around Senator Klobuchar, like where is the generational divide on thinking about the way that she treats her staff. I'm not sure where it exists, right, because 
part of my mind says millennials would be more apt to walk out because of the behaviors that have been alleged. And part of my mind says millennials would be more apt to consider the way that she was behaving from a framework that considers the way that we perceive women leaders and the way that we perceive gender and leadership and to wonder if maybe they were feeling that way because those behaviors were in a woman rather than a man. Female staffers on Senator Bernie Sanders' 2016 presidential campaign have complained of sexual harassment and unequal pay in that organization. How uh, should we scrutinize how politicians run their offices and uh, how much of that behavior is an indication of how they will lead in an elected office? I would say we should always have a scrutinous eye toward our elected officials and the way that they're running their offices because I think those things do matter. The way that they act behind closed doors, the kinds of cultures that they allow to permeate their offices certainly matter. And I would hope that people would choose to be transparent about those practices and what's going on behind closed doors so that the public can make informed decisions. It's all about being able to make informed decisions. I think also that if we're looking at presidential campaign as a mechanism for understanding how a person might act as president, again, I want to come back to this idea of applying the same standard. So we look at the allegations of abuse and being tough in Amy Klobuchar's camp. You have allegations of sexual assault and harassment in Bernie Sanders' 2016 campaign. And we have proven facts around criminal wrongdoing in the Trump campaign of 2016. And so I think it's all fair game, but it needs to be addressed holistically in the same standard for understanding, you know, if a presidential campaign is a microcosm of how a person will be as a leader, then we should assume our current president might be involved in criminal wrongdoing. And I don't necessarily think that that is a fair connection to make, but if we're going to apply that standard, then I think we need to apply it equally. Joshua Collins is an assistant professor of human resource development at the University of Minnesota. He is an expert on human resource development theory and practice. We're talking about allegations that Senator Amy Klobuchar mistreated some former staff members. How do the challenges of leadership affect people of color and gay and transgender people in the workplace? This is a really important conversation and one that I think must be viewed from multiple angles and through the lens of intersectionality. And what I mean by that is that people who have one or more marginalized or minority identities face barriers that those without do not. And this conversation we're having today was spurred because of the allegations against Senator Klobuchar, but Senator Kamala Harris has also been subjected to some extreme criticism in the past several weeks since announcing her campaign for president, including allegations about an unsavory beginning of her relationship with her now husband, speculation as to why she never had biological children, and even blatant lies about her lineage and place of birth 
that are not unlike the birther movement that President Obama was subjected to. So in addition to sexism, because Kamala Harris is black and Indian and Jamaican, right, she's got these several layers of identity. And because of that, she's been subjected not only to the sexism, but she's also facing racial and ethnic prejudice that Senator Klobuchar will never face as a white woman. And several years ago, I conducted a study on gay men who were police officers in the state of Florida. And they talked about several issues I think are relevant to women leaders and leaders from a variety of other minority backgrounds. First, they framed the history of their occupation as being a straight white man's job and talked about how policies and procedures that were initially designed for and by straight white men don't necessarily always work for everyone else. And as the workforce diversifies, something has to change. Second, they talked about how important it was to be ready for what they called war stories, or essentially going into every professional space knowing that they were going to have some bad experiences and that they were going to have to learn to advocate for themselves in order to move forward. Third is this idea that if you aren't a straight white man, you often have to work twice, three, four, or more times as hard to get to the same place in your career, and that there's no breathing room to be mediocre if you're from a historically underrepresented or marginalized group. I think this really speaks back to the issues um, we've been discussing around being held to a different standard and being asked questions that those who came before you might never have been held accountable to. And finally, people have bias. I've mentioned implicit bias and confirmation bias already, but it isn't always implicit. People still hold explicitly sexist, racist, homophobic views, and I believe it's a mistake to believe that those views, which are often considered to be personal views, don't find their way into the workplace in various ways. There are misogynists among us. There are white supremacists among us. There are homophobes among us. And those of us who live any aspect of our life on the periphery of society or in organizations recognize these biases very easily. I think the trick is to get others to recognize them and to learn how to intervene on our behalf. I think we have to hold everyone accountable for disrupting these systems of power and oppression. We expect it, I think, of women, people of color, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer people. But the work can't all be done by those who are being held back by the oppressive systems. So going back to the question I've been asking, is everyone being held accountable to the same standard for getting this work done? What do you think are the biggest challenges in workplaces today in dealing with issues of diversity? My discipline of human resource development is a discipline that, at its core, is concerned with learning and performance in organizations. And I think when you really think about diversity and inclusion and how organizations are responding to it, these are matters of learning in, and performance. An environment that produces conditions where qualified people who are women or minorities are not able to succeed as leaders is not an environment where learning and performance can take place. Often, 
then when people hear that, they immediately go to training as a solution. But one thing that we know from a couple decades now of diversity training research is that diversity training doesn't really work the way that we think it works. Uh, One-time mandatory training on sexual harassment or workplace discrimination is not going to inspire individual or organizational transformation. Organizations that are doing this work most effectively are leveraging diversity and inclusion in every aspect of what they do. It's interwoven in an employee's daily experience within the organization, and it's communicated as a core value. And I think my discipline of human resource development and a lot of related disciplines, human resource management, almost anything going on in a business school, right, we all have a role to play in getting senior leaders and executives who are still dominantly straight white men on board with holistic changes that reshape organizational culture and create an environment where people can engage honestly and openly with their own biases to confront systems that thwart diversity from thriving. Simply put, we can't run away from these conversations in society or in our organizations. We have to have the dialogue and we have to listen to people who have had these experiences with being different, with sometimes discrimination or harassment. If women leaders are telling you that they're being judged by a different standard, you have to listen to that even if your instinct is to push back and to deny that there's any possibility you might have a bias as it relates to gender. We have to listen. We have to engage. We have to ask, is everyone being held to that same standard? And I think that's a conversation that um, practitioners in my discipline of human resource development can and should be facilitating in organizations. What can employees do if they feel their bosses have unrealistic performance expectations, are discriminating against them, or are exhibiting abusive behavior? Some of these are legal questions, and some of these are questions that speak to kind of normal organizational dynamics that I think a lot of us navigate. I think, hopefully, if you're an employee in an organization, you have an annual performance review thinking about ways that you can leverage that review to be, um, hopefully it already is two-sided, but if it isn't, finding ways to interject your voice and your experience in that meeting to make it known that you feel maybe like you're being overworked or that something was inappropriate. Obviously, again, hopefully you can go to your human resources professionals with these kinds of issues, and human resource professionals are trained to treat such allegations or complaints with confidentiality and to work to address those complaints. When it comes down to abusive behavior or things that are really degrading to your humanity, um, I do a little bit of career coaching, and I work with people around their self-advocacy, right? A job is important, but a job and a career does not have to be everything. And if you are unhappy and you are being mistreated in an organization, you should speak up for yourself and you should try to establish allies among you who might intervene on your behalf if they also notice those same behaviors. And if it comes to it and nothing changes, sometimes the best thing you can do for your own psychological health is to walk away. You know, those are the realities of these situations until we get to a place where 
you know, we can have these dialogues within organizations to say, hey, you did something in a meeting the other day that really upset me and made me feel less than, and I, I hope we can talk about it and that we can address the behavior. I mean, if your organization is not at that place yet, sometimes the best thing you can do is move on. Joshua Collins is an assistant professor of human resource development at the University of Minnesota. Professor Collins, thanks so much for joining us on Dialogue Minnesota. Thank you for having me. Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm Jim Dubois. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.